Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is a show about men produced by two women, which I think is fitting. That's the way it should be here in 2018. Our intern, Zandra Ellen, who is wrapping up her illustrious time here, collaborated with senior producer Betsy Kaplan to look at how men feel now that they've been gently and not so gently corrected uh, about some of their prior behavior uh, in the midst of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. Uh, How do men proceed? Because, you know... We're an orchestra. I mean, humanity is an orchestra. We're never all going to play the same instrument, and we're never going to all play it the same way. So how do men figure out how to play their particular instrument without upsetting the violin section? All right, that was a bad metaphor. You'll hear better stuff after the news. All right, so if you're listening to this show on August 16th, 2018, Aretha Franklin has just died. Um, And it kind of, this song kind of fits something that it's a part of the conversation we're going to have. I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, And if you're listening at some other time, I I guess it's no less relevant if you're part of a Martian archaeological crew sifting through the rubbles of humankind. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of things happen on this day, is what I'm trying to say. So that song. Uh, was actually initially, I believe, intended to be an Otis Redding song, and it was going to be about, and it was going to be a ballad, and it was, I think, really going to be a song about a very tired black man coming home at the end of the day and wanting some respect. Uh, and then, of course, Aretha just turned it into something else and, and immortalized it uh, in, in a way that only she could. And it kind of gets us a little bit towards what we're going to talk about today. Let me quickly mention that this is uh, the final, for now, uh, effort on this show of our intern, Zandra Ellen, who's just been kind of amazing uh, the entire summer. Uh, and uh, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, has kind of mentored her on this one. And what they wanted to do a show about uh, is how it is to be a man now that there's been – it's kind of like you know, in dog training, they use the term correction, right? You know, like a snap of a leash and the choke collar. So uh, men have been corrected either with a swat to the snout or um, a little pull on the leash or sometimes a big yank on the leash depending on who the man, what man was and what he was doing as part of these movements known as Me Too and Time's Up. You know, some of the uh, things that those movements were concerned about were very, very applicable to some men. And some of the things that those movements were concerned about were maybe applicable to all men. So the question is, how do we proceed from here? What have we learned? 
what kinds of lessons got incorporated, what kinds of lessons seem maybe not to fit every single size of human being. Uh, and so joining us now is someone who has interrogated these questions as few other people have. Uh, and of course, we're a uh, hometown proud because she's an alumna of this station, Anna Sale, reporter, host, and managing editor of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money podcast. Manhood Now uh, is a three-part multimedia episode of that particular uh, brand, Death, Sex, and Money, uh, created in collaboration with 538. Uh, this is a thing where Anna uh, looked at a lot of these questions. So, Anna, I want to begin by just um, being, uh, as only I can do, really old mm -hmm. um, and, uh -huh. <laughs> and, say, <laughs> and say that – so, uh, I, as a newspaper reporter, I remember going to a men's consciousness ra raising meeting and they were talking about, you know, the, the models of masculinity that had been foisted on them by their fathers and their sports coaches and how those didn't really work and, and – um, and, and, and how they needed to change and how their interactions with women were affected by changes that they want to go through. Um, and all of this was happening in 1978. Uh, mm -hmm. And in 1984, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote an essay in the New York Times Magazine about the new man. Uh, and she, she talked about a lot of these same questions. She talked about, well, it was one quote, I see the change in the popular images that define masculinity. I see it in the men I know, mostly in their 30s, who are conscious of possessing a sensibility and even a way of life that is radically different from that of their fathers. These men have been, in a word, feminized but without necessarily becoming more feminist. In fact, I do not think that those of us who are feminists either can or would want to take credit for that change. And then lastly, in 1990, uh, Cheryl Lavin released this song. Who like to dress like Richard Simmons? Sensitive new age guys. Who are hard to tell from women? Sensitive new age guys. Who tapes 30-something on their VCRs Who's got child on board stickers on their cars So, Anna, you know, these revolutions have been attempted in the past um, with varying amounts of success. Um, what, what's going on now in your mind that's different? How does 2018 differ from other attempts to recast masculinity? Well, I think as a as a show at Death, Sex, and Money, what we wanted to sort of bring out was what are the conversations men are having with other men and with themselves about what a good man is in 2018? And I think what's different in 2018 than those examples from 40 years ago or 34 years ago or 28 years ago is now there's a sense of real consequences yes. um, and a sense of men looking back and rethinking moments, whether it was a romantic moment or a moment in the workplace and thinking, huh, did I miss, did I miss something that was happening? Um, and, and I think that that's a really healthy um, reckoning for men to go through. But I think it does raise a lot of questions about, okay, if, if there are consequences for bad behavior, what does the model for a a great man look like right now? Because I think we do have a lot of contradictions in our culture. We, of course, want men to be empathic and make room for women to speak and not to mansplain. But there's still a lot of pressure men feel, of course, to 
seem strong, to be seen as providers, to uh, exert a sense of um, authority. And so we just wanted to hear how men on an individual level in their personal lives were piecing all this together. Let's hear a little bit of how they uh, did piece uh, certain su- certain questions together. I think we've got uh, a clip featuring Frederick uh, and Freeman. Uh, this oh. is about um, fathers encouraging sons to play football. The, the uh, thing that I was interested in or thought was important was that uh, they not be isolated from their peers in the, in the community. Now, football was the activity in our neighborhood where all their peers were, were you know, they were engaged in that. It's what and everybody so was if doing. If they hadn't been yeah. engaged in that, they would have been about the only one at home <laughs> after school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the whole neighborhood. The physical activities that I would have pursued probably would have isolated me from uh, my community. There, I, I made requests to take gymnastics lessons. <laughs> Eventually, uh, gymnastics turned into wanting to take dance lessons. Anna, tell me a little bit more about what you hear going on in that conversation and wherever else it sprawled out to. Yeah, I I love that exchange. That's Freeman and Frederick. Freeman is in his 80s. He grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas during segregation. His son, Frederick, also grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas and is about 30 years old, not under segregation, um, and is gay. And so what you hear there, I think, is a really interesting comparison of values. And, And I should say Freeman, once his son Frederick said, I don't want to play football. It doesn't feel like me. He supported his son's choice to do martial arts instead. Um, but for Freeman, suiting up and joining a football team was was not just a, a, a way to participate in community, but it was a way to sort of become a man in the community. And then you hear Fred, Frederick sort of pushing back on that, saying, like, that didn't feel like it fit for me and who I was, and I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want that. It's not me. And so just hearing that, um, I just I just loved hearing them talk about that, because often when you hear the trope about, you know, dad forcing son to play football, it's about like wanted him to show that he's tough. But for for Freeman, he's talking about the real value of what it is to play on a football team, particularly in a black community where joining together in a uh, on the football field is an important way of gathering as a community. I think also for guys for a long time, um, and this comes up uh, in, in the book written by Thomas Page McBee, who's going to be on at the end of this show. You know, guys sometimes thought, what can I do that just sort of answers the question about my masculinity so I don't ever have to talk about it again and, and I don't have to be <laughs> tested about it? And so playing football is a pretty good example. You know, if you play football, eh, I mean, in, this, in the case of his book, it's boxing. You know, but some sports writer says to a boxer, you're the only guys who don't ever have to prove anything because you're boxers. Uh, and, and I think one of the things... And, and I, I think also for a long time, a guy who didn't know anything about sports, um, didn't follow sports. It's actually in that Cheryl Lavin song. You know, was there were other questions? Is he gay? Is he what's 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 going on with him? He doesn't follow sports. And I, I'm wondering if you found that that those very distinctive dichotomous markers are kind of fading a little bit, that they don't work that well, they don't resonate universally, and nothing has really taken their place. 
That's exactly it. I think that a lot of the ideas about how to be a man in all caps are fading away. And in some ways, that's very liberating. Like for someone like Frederick, like he feels great that that maybe a kid growing up in Little Rock today wouldn't have the expectation of having to be on a football team. But what that means is that there's less markers of how to understand who you are as a as a boy and becoming a man. And and there is a sense of um, when you lose models, it's like, who am I and how am I to be a man? And I think that's a conversation that is missing. And that's what we were trying to get at with these episodes on the show was to try to like lift up what happens when you lose models. And, and, and for me, where I came from, I am a woman, I should say. I'm a woman and I'm in my, my late 30s. And and I grew up in a time for women where it wasn't just one thing to be a woman. I could think about the different ways I wanted to express my femininity and my womanhood. I could work full time. I could be a mother. I could figure out how to work all those things together. And with my sisters, with my women friends, that's been a constant conversation as part of my coming of age and figuring out what I wanted my adult life to look like. I think men, young men, have don't have that same kind of um, constant dialogue. I, I actually talked to a guy in, in the episode who just paused me when I asked him how he thought about, like, what a man, good man is. He was just like, do women talk about this? Men don't talk about this. <laughs> it just was like, yeah, women talk about this. And I think it's important for men to talk about, like, the, the uh, just like how it can be a little disorienting when you don't know exactly how you're supposed to be. Yeah. And of course, the other part of that is some of these institutions are changing too. So, I mean, football is a great example. Suddenly, uh, African-American football players are at a leading edge of social change movements. My own personal favorite football player, Aaron Rodgers, uh, in the offseason met with the Dalai Lama. Right now, he's dating Danica Patrick, who's an extremely strong woman uh, in her own right. I mean, all these- I did not know that. Yeah, these institutions, they change too. But yeah, there's still that question. How do you learn? How do you learn the right answers? So, uh, Wolfie, this is going to be A3, but one of the people that you talked to was Alex. Uh, Alex, Mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of people, is trying to figure things out on the internet. In my opinion, the worst place to try to figure out important things. But let's hear how that's going for Alex. Red Pill fundamentally believes that every single man, no matter who he may be, can work out and can improve himself and actually be successful with women. So, you know, Red Pill's danger is that it gives good advice and so people always end up seeing that their advice kind of works. Uh, and then falling into the, the wider ideology along with it. Have you ever have you ever worried that you might fall into that? No. No. What do you get out of it? Uh, I'm just curious about the way these people think. It's just fascinating, especially to see the way that they, they've evolved over the years. But a lot of it also comes from maybe not feeling quite as alone in the world, knowing that men out there are also struggling. Uh, maybe they come to the wrong answer, but it's not just me who kind of feels a little bit adrift, uh, that's probably more of what it is. So he's talking about something called the red pill. This is a thread on Reddit uh, that's, uh, well, Anna, you could probably do a, a better job of saying what the red pill is like. Yeah, well, I actually had, had not spent a lot of time on the red pill before Alex and I talked about it, so I did some deep diving. And it's it's a thread on Reddit that, um, on the one hand, has a lot of self-improvement advice from man to man, um, but it also has a real prominent misogynist thread in the way that um, it talks about women. There's a kind of ethos of, you know, this is how you can... Um, 
this is how you can trick women into wanting to sleep with you and 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 definitely like describes women as being um totally emotional and capable be manipulated easily um it's it's not a place where i i i particularly like hanging out um it's it's not my people but what i found interesting was alex he's just out of college and on the one hand he told me you know i feel i feel fine about who i am i i feel i'm, I'm i like who i am but but he's a virgin he's trying to figure out how to be attractive to women he's not quite sure how to get their attention and the place where he's found tips that feel usable are, is a place like the red pill. So that to me suggests like, huh, what would it be like if we had healthier places for men to, young men to go to, to talk about um, the confounding questions of, of dating and, and romance that, that don't um, have that thread of, of uh, kind of anti-womanness. And, and it's a little, it's a little concerning to me that that's, that the cor- those corners of the internet that are feeding those questions um, tend to have uh, sort of an anti-woman bias. You know, it's also interesting about the sort of where, where could you go to learn uh, ideas about manhood, uh, and the red pill sounds uh, very similar to to what Donald Trump was saying. You know, when he was trying to defend himself in the famous pussy grabbing tape, and he said it was locker room talk. And a lot of us who'd played a lot of sports, and I was still playing terrible basketball well into my thirties, but I've been in locker rooms a lot of my life. I never heard anybody talk like that ever. Maybe I've been in the wrong locker rooms, but men didn't. In fact, if a guy talked about that like uh, like that about women in any locker room I ever was in, we would look at him like he was kind of some, something wrong with you. You're like a borderline rapist or something. Uh, and it is odd because I think there are these sort of models like locker room talk was such an all-purpose explainer for Trump in that moment, except I don't know, Anna. It doesn't really feel to, real to me. That's that's not how men have talked in the locker rooms I've been in. Well, that's good to hear. I haven't spent a lot of time in no. men's locker rooms, so I didn't, I didn't know for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's like that's something that 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 I think is is interesting right now in this moment is if you are. Uh, thinking about yourself as someone who's not going to be sort of put in a box and not going to respond to Me Too and not going to examine your behavior and you sort of go on to this other extreme of like, this is, you know, I'm I'm an all caps man, M-A-N, and I'm going to behave this way because this is the way men behave and and paint men with this really broad brush. Like there are certainly men who are like, uh, no, that's that's not really how I see myself right now. Um, and, and so, again, that's why, like, sort of churning up this conversation about what is what is masculinity in 2018? What is a good man in 2018? What are some things about traditional manhood that are that are um, honorable characteristics that are worth holding up and saying, like, you know, it's great to show up for your family and to think of that as a major responsibility of yours. Um, I think those are, are conversations that need to be had as well. But um, yeah, I think that like the idea that that manhood exists on a spectrum of um, locker room talk, like Donald Trump claims happens, and then sensitive new age guy on the other <laughs> side, like it's there's a lot of in between those two extremes. I want to talk about these in, in, uh, in betweens, and uh, I, I hope I'm not treading in a, a wrong place. I don't, I don't think I am. Um, 
you and I a few years ago had a conversation. I'm like 72 percent sure we had it on the air, but you know I might be wrong. But anyway, what had happened was, and I, I'm sure you remember this this incident. Um, you had needed a, a ride after being in the studio, like maybe on a Sunday or something, and Jonathan Schwartz uh, gave you a ride uh, in his car. <laughs> um, in his car, I should say that. Um, and so Jonathan Schwartz, who is one of the people who wound up being forced out of WNYC in the kind of midst of the Me Too movement, my recollection, Anna, was that he asked you some questions about like your love life and your attitudes towards romance and stuff like that. Kind, the kind of questions that these days in, um, you know, in training seminars for <laughs> managers and, and office workers in general, we are told not to have those kinds of conversations. But my recollection, and maybe it's a little disorder, was you were kind of amused by it and, and kind of tickled that here's this, you know, quite a bit older man who's lived a life uh, and lived a somewhat picaresque and colorful life, according, according to his own memoirs, is asking you questions about the state of your heart and your love and your own. I don't know. How do you feel about that conversation now? Was it inappropriate or do you still want to live in a world where Jonathan Schwartz can ask Anna Sale that question? That's an interesting question. I, I will say at the time and and still my recollection of that encounter was Jonathan Schwartz is this was a radio host at WNYC. He has since been let go, which is part of in part of the Me Too era. Um, and uh, I my recollection of our encounter was here is this guy who is an expert on, um, mm -hmm. you know, the songbook of America, American standards, which are all about romance. Um, and so I found it charming that he you know, the way that he has small talk is to ask people about romance in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, I did not feel like that particular conversation was in any way him creeping on me or mm -hmm. trying to um, suggest that we should be romantic or to make me divulge inappropriate details about my love life. And so that conversation did not feel inappropriate to me. Um, whether I feel like it should continue, it, it should be an appropriate conversation to have in 2018. Um, I, you know, I like this is where it's hard. Like it's yeah. hard to define what is um, what it, what has that creepy element and what doesn't. Um, for me, as a woman reporter, as a woman who's worked in in newsrooms, who has engaged with politicians as a reporter, and who, you know, the thing is, like, you know it when you feel it. You mm. know when someone's creeping on you in a way that, um, sig you know, when I felt signals like, ah, oh, I better like not be alone with this person or like end this conversation because I don't like the kind of general tone. Um, I don't think that means that um, questions about like. I don't know, like, <laughs> how's your family? Right. You know, like, how's your, who's your husband? Like, I, I think in certain contexts, like, those are fine. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, like, I do think that the, uh, the, I think it's been important for all of us, women and men, to think about how power works in the workplace. And um, because, uh, you know, in that context, I, I was a young woman compared to him. I was like a more lowly employee compared to him. And so um, the responsibility of people with power, men and women in workplaces, to make sure they're not, um, you know, creating uncomfortable environments uh, is 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 paramount. And so um, I think more sensitivity about just like feeling out what 
what where those lines are and where those boundaries are is, is important. But again, it's not a black and white thing. Exactly. I mean, I, the reason I was laughing was, I mean, as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about it in a Jonathan Schwartzian uh, analogy, which is that, you know, I mean, humankind is an orchestra and the orchestra isn't 300 million people playing theremins at exactly the same pitch. You know, it's it's all kinds of different instruments that play in different tunes and tones. And and so you don't want an orchestra with no bassoon, you know. Uh, now, there's certain things you don't want in your – you don't want somebody playing a chainsaw and that's like Harvey Weinstein or maybe it's John Hockenberry. Maybe it's who, whoever, you know. There are thir- certain things you don't want in your orchestra. But you also – you don't want something that becomes merged together tonally to a point where it's toneless, you know, that that somehow or other one of the things that one of the nuances we're trying to navigate right now is, so what's a bassoon and what's a chainsaw? You know, what's something that's a little bit different from the violin that Anna plays, but not so different that it can't be in the same orchestra room? And I think for guys, you know, conscientious guys, that may still be a complicated question. Am I making any sense at all? Say yes. Yeah, yeah, and I and I would say the other thing to think about with with the instruments in an orchestra is they were all made in different moments in time. Mm-hmm. So, um, someone who has been working for fifty years, for whom the workplace was a very different place when they thought they learned the rules of how to behave, like. It's very different if you are 25 and entering the workplace and straight out of um, seminars about gender politics in college and have very clear expectations about how you are to be treated and not treated. Um, I think what's been what I've really loved about the conversation about gender and work the workplace that Me Too has brought about is it's allowed me and helped me learn to learn to look back and say, huh, that was a moment like I wonder why I felt like I needed to not speak up when that made me uncomfortable. I wonder why there's a moment when I was a young political reporter um, in West Virginia, my first radio job, when I was interviewing a powerful legislator and straight into my microphone when I asked him a question about policy, he asked, uh, are you married? And I said, aren't you? And he said, I'm whatever you want me to be, right into my microphone. And I did not use that tape. (laughs) And I'm like, hello, (laughs) you use that tape, young Anna reporter. Like, why was it that I felt like I had to be embarrassed that he was saying that to me when it was completely inappropriate? Um, So that's what I think is interesting is like women, all of us in the workplace thinking about like, why did we think that was okay? Um, I'm going to grab grab one quick call and then we're going to go to a break uh, and then we'll have a little bit more time uh, to talk to Anna and maybe hear some other um, things from from her work, some other cuts from her work. But here's uh, Andy. Andy, I'm kind of up against a break here. So the more succinct you can be, the better, not to put pressure on you. But go ahead. Okay. Hi, Colin and Anna. Um, So I, I grew up, I was born in 60. So in 78, I was 18 years old. Christine Lavin. I was the sensitive new age guy. Uh, Strong women in my family telling me, don't be like your dad. You know, my dad was a nice guy, but he grew up in the 50s. So he had, you know, he was just raised with those, um, you know, those traits. And so now, uh, after having been married twice for 35 years uh, in total, um, what I've discovered is that for the same reason women often enjoy having a gay having gay male friends they're non-threatening and they're not interested in sex they cry at movies all of those things 
the sensitive new age guy, at least in my experience, turns out to be a great nesting partner, but there's, uh, there's not a lot of um, uh, intimate uh, sexual attraction to the sensitive new age guy. So, uh, yeah, and, yeah I, th- I think you're running your thumb down maybe the ultimate knife's edge for men. And so as we head into this break, Anna, he brings up a really great question. At least for men, men often feel like they've gotten that message that, yes, they would like to be able to hang around with a sensitive new age guy who cries at movies and stuff like that. But they also – there's another kind of, you know, a sl- little bit more Stanley Kowalski-ish um, thing that they also maybe want to see and they just can't get it in both places. And for the guy, it's like, well, which one do you want to be? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting tension is like, you know, what is what is it when I say that I want to be I want to have a man in my life who um, is both can can talk to me about feelings really deeply and also um, can make me feel totally taken care of and maybe seem a little bit like a cowboy. Like, I think that's a lot of that's a lot for one man to contain. Um, and, And I think that that's a real like. That's a real thing that that like women have to be honest about. Straight women, if 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 men are, are who they're looking for, um, and men themselves t- f- figure out like what what feels comfortable. Who who am I actually? Um, you don't have to pretend to cry at movies if that's not who you are. Um, but I think that that's a different uh, that's a different thing than learning how to listen deeply to women and to see women as having. Um, you know, kind of being worthy of equal respect and 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 equal, um, uh, uh, you know, just equal equality uh, in those relationships. I think that that's a different thing. Yeah. If you wait long enough, I mean, I'm in my 60s. I cry like during Flomax commercials now. So uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to take a little break here. 860-275-7266 if you want to talk to us. Uh, and we'll be right back. Child on board, stickers on their cars. Oh. Whose last names are hyphenated? Who loved three men and a baby? A movie I hated. All right. This is so much fun. I want to talk to Anna Sale every day. Can I have that happen? Probably not. <laughs> Re- uh, Anna Sale's with us, reporter, host, and managing editor of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money podcast. She did this fascinating project. They did this fascinating project, A Manhood Now, a three-part multimedia episode um, created in collaboration with 538, one of the things that got us thinking about this topic, too. Um, from that podcast, just because we're pressed for time, I want to get just a little bit more on the air from that, that special. Uh, let's hear the voice of Luke, and then we'll talk about him. I'm finding my own uh, big transition in my 70s because um, around sex, it is totally different. When I got into my certainly late 60s and now, my sex drive has diminished to a very low level. And then on top of that, a few years ago, I had to have surgery for prostate cancer, and I lost that sexual ability. Fortunately, because I don't have the drive uh, to do much about it, but it's gone. And so as a man, part of what defined me for so many years, and I'm sure defines most men, is simply not there. Do you think it's changed the way you move through the world? It, It has a bit. I realize that I'm a sexually impotent older man. And so I'm really aware of that. Um, 
the sense of moving around partly invisible because I'm an older guy and partly being reminded that I'm also impotent. You know, uh, that's there's something obviously very wrenching about that and, uh, and not to sound glib, but there's a sort of live by the sword, die by the sword quality to it. If you get defined or you, you allow yourself to be defined uh, in that one particular way and it's taken away, I mean the abyss that opens at your feet, I guess, would be pretty huge. Mm. But I, I don't know. I, hearing it even now, how do you react to it? I just loved that conversation. Um, for one, I learned a lot talking to to this guy who we called Luke. That's not his real name. But he talked about his time in his 20s when he would walk into a room and he would scan it for, like, who was the woman that he wanted to try to sleep with. Like, it, he described his sex drive as this all-consuming energy. And looking back now with some embarrassment, realizing that the women who were in those rooms probably saw him scanning them up and down. Um, and and it helped me understand that's not a feeling I've ever had, where, where I have this sense of like, just overpowering, um, that that all, all I'm after is figuring out who I'm going to partner with when I walk into a room. And then to hear how he's gone through this transition, now in his 70s, um, and and claiming and saying out loud the word impotent, I was really actually moved by that. It's, of course, a clinical term, but it also is quite a loaded emotional term for a man to say, I'm impotent. Um, and to hear how, for him, it has felt like he's free of this distraction that um, he described like seeing the world now in ways that felt like he was seeing more colors as opposed to less. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting, this connection between um, not only like age and learning how to move in the world, but also how that's very connected to hormones and biology. Yeah, I, I guess I also feel as though I, I, getting ready for the show, I was thinking about, I don't know, like, you know, when I die, if women spoke at my funeral, you know, what would they say? And I would hope that hmm. they that they would what say. What did you think they would say? Yeah. <laughs> well, I would hope that there would be a lot of women who at least, you know, maybe just during the cocktail hour or something would say, you know, he – he was really interested in seeing me do my best work and he was really interested in maybe, you know, helping me get to someplace that I needed to get. And that's been truer and truer as I, I get older. I'm, uh, you know, I think if I define myself for a really long period in terms of my, my sexual aptitude or something like that, I, I, I mean, I, I feel bad for Luke that it took him that long because it just seems to me that there's so many ways in which over the decades I've interacted with women, not just the one I just named, that to boil it all down to that and then to have to you know, go to, through something that traumatic in order to see the other colors, it seems like a kind of a really a tragic story in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's – it's also a story about like the how – a very um, simple definition of manhood as, you know, conquest of women is very confining. And you're right. Like, think of all the deeper relationships he may have missed out on by not um, seeing women as more than potential sexual partners. Um, yeah. I want to do two things before we run out of time here. One of them is I want to discuss one more song. Um, and so this is a song by Dar Williams. You, you may very well know this song. Uh, and uh, uh -huh. I want to talk about two different chunks of it. Um, uh, so Wolfie's going to play the first, first chunk, it's the, kind of the opening chunk. I won't forget when Peter Pan came to my house, took my hand. I said I was a boy. I'm glad he didn't check. I learned to fly, I learned to fight I lived a whole life in one night We saved each other's lives out on the pirate deck 
night when I'm leaving a late night with some friends And I hear somebody tell me it's not safe Someone should help me I need to find a nice man to walk me home When I was a boy I scared the pants off of my mom I'm getting verklempt because this song always makes me verklempt. But that song is called oh. When I Was a Boy, and I'm guessing you probably know the song. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's at the beginning. Dar Williams is talking in the song about how, first of all, she was, in a sense, uh, at one point in her life, a boy. And and she doesn't want to be babied in a way that you wouldn't baby a boy. She doesn't necessarily need to be walked home or something like that. Or at least it bothers her. It, it kicks some tripwire. Um, now, the part that just gets me and that I think people forget about this song is the completely amazing conclusion, which we're going to hear here. I like the woods where I would creep It's a secret I can keep Except when I'm tired Except when I'm being cut off Guarded I've had a lonesome, awful day The conversation finds its way To catching fireflies out in the backyard And so I tell the man I'm with About the other life I live And I say now you're top gun lost and you have one he says oh no no can't you see when i was a girl my mom and i we always talked and i picked flowers everywhere that i was okay i cried the first time i heard that song and i'm crying now because anna uh, it is about sort of this thing that we as men lose I mean, this part of it, Mm. you know, Um, and that loss is profound. And I don't know who beats Mm. us out of it, but I think you heard a lot of stories that were kind of like that. Like, where did that part of me go? Yeah. Where's that little boy? Um, Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like, how do we figure out how to be our full selves um, in when there's lots of messages telling us we need to be one thing or the other and and. I think particularly in this moment for men, some of those messages are crashing up right against each other. Um, you know, it's something I think about a lot. I'm a parent of a two-year-old right now, so I spend a lot of time on playgrounds, and I watch little boys and little girls, and I think about um, who they may become and what messages they're already receiving about how they are to be. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, generally this moment of saying, there's lots of ways to be a boy and to be a man is is really wonderful. And I think um, it also takes support in conversation about like, there is a lot of confusing messages. Like, yes, we're telling you, you can be all, all sorts of ways, but uh, um, figuring out how to navigate that um, can be can feel quite isolating if you're doing it um, on your own. All right, so I'm now officially a sensitive new age guy. I cried on this show. Um, <laughs> Don't tell. Very on brand. Yes. Don't tell anybody, Anna. We'll cut it out. We'll cut it. Wait. What do you mean we're live? Nobody told me we were live. All right. Uh, we have to stop because uh, we've got another guest to get to. But Anna Sale, so great to talk to you. You're so much fun and you're so Thank smart. You uh, from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money podcast. Let's take a break and then we'll come back. Today's show was produced by Zandra Ellen, with help from Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by a woman. 
On tomorrow's show, The Nose talks about the new movie, Black Klansman. And now, back to Colin. So uh, this next part of our show, I should tell you, is going to be done also in the format we call Radio for the Deaf. We have two fabulous interpreters uh, of American Sign Language. Uh, They are here in the studio with me. So as we're speaking, as my guest and I are speaking, uh, that uh, will be available. And then in perpetuity, it will be available at the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page in a Facebook Live format. So in other words, if you go to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page right now, you'll get to see the interpreters um, who are uh, rendering this in American Sign Language. All right. So uh, we're going to now talk to uh, Thomas Page McBee. Uh, he's a uh, vice's masculinity expert, former editor at Quartz, and the author of a memoir, Man Alive, which was named a best book of 2014 by NPR Books. And his new book, Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man, it came out just this past Tuesday. Uh, and so first of all, Thomas Page McBee, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, this is a... a um, a book about discovering uh, or exploring the question about what it's like to be a man, but in the context of boxing. And, and given the rest of your story, which I guess we'll get to, boxing seems like a maybe a pretty extreme place to go and ask those questions. What drew you there? Well, I mean, first of all, I think I'm a pretty extreme guy, so that okay. might be the, the starting point. Um, but for me, you know, I, I'm trans, and I transitioned uh, when I was 30 years old. So uh, I had lived an entire uh, adult life prior to, to transitioning. And um, as I was sort of coming into myself um, physically, I felt amazing. But as I was coming into myself as, the, like, in the world, I was noticing so many aspects of, like, how people expected me to behave or interacting with the world in this way that was just, it, it felt um, often distressing to me. And, and in part because I was raised by a feminist single mom and, uh, and I was you know, queer before I transitioned. And so I really um, was feeling like a dissonance often about, you know, how I was supposed to be versus how I really felt I was, uh, which was ironic since I'd gone through so much trouble to transition in the first place. So the actual book came from um, my sort of breaking point moment, which was uh, the summer of 2015, I had, for some reason, uh, sort of three months in a row where every month um, a guy tried to fight me on the street. And uh, I'd been you know, on testosterone for four years. This was a new experience, but it was sort of, for me, the last, like, the last straw amongst many things that were sort of disturbing me. And I decided that instead of just doing what you know, the men around me were kind of advising me to do, which is sort of say, well, I'm not that kind of guy, uh, and move on, or say, that's just how guys are, and move on. Um, I decided I wanted to know the answer to why men want to fight in the first place. And so I pitched a story to courts about, you know, getting involved with this charity boxing uh, club and uh, and training to fight. And um, that's what I did. And I ended up fighting in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> so um, there's a there's a passage in the book. I think you're actually quoting a journalist talking to another boxer who's saying and the journalist is saying, you know, boxers are the only ones who don't have to prove anything. Uh, you've already proved it. You're a fighter. You're a boxer. And in, in that, you know. I, I've I've hung around boxers. I've written about boxing. Uh, I boxed for about three minutes, um, and uh, that was plenty for me. Thank you. Um, and but you know the problem with that, of course, is then masculinity gets equated with fighting and violence. If if that's the way you prove yourself, and it's kind of a you know there's no questions asked uh, afterwards if you can do that. I don't know. That seems so reductive. And I know it's something that you, you're asking questions about, too. What's the connection between violence and masculinity? Yeah. And in the end, I mean, so that's where I started because I personally also had been subject to male violence. And, and I was really aware 
um, of my own history of, of being abused at the hands of men. And then also um, I had a near-death experience, you know, where I almost was shot by a guy. And so uh, once I transitioned and I suddenly became the man that uh, women crossed, you know, the street to avoid on a dark night, you know, I realized that, like, there, this relationship, whatever it was, seemed to be such a clear part of the fabric of what being a man meant, at least in our culture. And I was, you know, that's what to me was the, the starting point of like really wanting to untangle what, why, and what that meant. And what I found, you know, through, I, I didn't just fight, I reported out this story in this book. And, the, you know, there, there isn't an actual biological connection between, for example, testosterone and aggression. I, I talked to a Stanford neurobiologist who explained to me that um, the actual connection is between testosterone and status seeking. And uh, if you'll indulge me for a second, I can explain that there, there was these economic games they ran out of Stanford where um, the point of the game, to win the game, you had to cooperate. And the men with the highest testosterone levels actually were the most cooperative. Um, but when men were told they were given a boost of testosterone, they actually became more aggressive, even though they weren't given a boost of testosterone. They were just told that. So that, that was a placebo effect. So these narratives about violence and masculinity are so deep into our, our culture and our sense of what being a man means, but there's actually, um, there isn't very much evidence that, that there's any actual reason beyond the stories we're telling ourselves. Although what's in our heads and what's real become, you know, pretty interchangeable yeah. most of the time. Um, and I think you yeah. found that too. Um, just maybe quickly just uh, tell the Larissa story. I think that's a good example of it. Yeah, so in my book, I tell the story of, uh, I, in, in the beginning of my training, I was paired with a woman boxer because we were all training to fight for the same charity match. And um, I was really bad, and she was really good. And she'd been training much longer than me, and she was this, you know, attorney and really, you know, ag- aggressive. And she, you know, I, I kept being asked to spar with her. And in a boxing gym, just like anywhere else uh, in life, you know, you're not supposed to hit a woman. And I found myself, you know, really kind of stressed, not just by, you know, I guess some valiant sense that I shouldn't hit a woman, but also by the optics of, you know, fighting a woman and what that said about me. And I was really, I, I was yet another place where I felt really disturbed. Like, why, why do I care what people think? You know, this woman could totally beat me, but I think that is what I cared about. And so that led me to wonder, you know, am I actually sexist? Is that even possible? And, you know, the answer was yes, of course. Like, <laughs> I live in this culture. I've internalized sexism. And, you know, so much of the book is about um, these hard questions, that uh, embarrassing questions, vulnerable questions, um, questions that I, I think men don't ask themselves because it's too hard. And I know you and Anna were talking earlier about the idea of a good man. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, when you want to be a good man, um, then, you, then that means there has to be a bad man. And, and it, it makes very little room for most people who are kind of in the middle in terms of like what we have internalized culturally to examine like, well, in what ways am I sexist? You know, in what ways have I taken on aspects of masculinity that I don't actually agree to if I really think about? And um, that was one moment where realizing how much I didn't want to fight her made me realize that I was struggling with my own sexism. And uh, in the end, we did end up sparring. <laughs> um, uh, we're talking to uh, Thomas Page uh, McBee. The book also kind of deals with the question of passing, right? Um, ultimately, there were a lot of people in this fight world, that pretty much all the people in this fight world, whom you didn't tell uh-huh. about your trans status. Did, was that the plan going in, or was it just hard to get out of your... Uh, uh, get off your chest in, in certain fraught situations? It, it was a plan going in because I've always been very open. I mean, I think, you know, when you transition late in life and 
I, I had a career where I was pretty public about, um, you know, I had written books and uh, I figured if people Googled me, of course they would find out, but I, I, I kind of wanted to, in a sense, you know, and I don't, I want to be careful about how I say this because I'm a man and that's just the truth, but I wanted to go undercover in my um, being trans because I was interested to see how much that was a mediating factor in terms of how people treated me. And so I really wanted to kind of be a fresh slate uh, guy on my own terms and see, you know, how people responded to me just, just as I was. And, um, and it was interesting because I, I wondered how much my lack of a boyhood might, um, might be informing the way I behaved and, and especially in this like very homosocial environment. And, um, and it, I found instead that it was a really, you know, boxing surprised me. It was very intimate and very tender. And I think that cover of violence, uh, to that quote you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, be, you don't have to prove yourself, uh, in that kind of, um, environment, that cover of violence that, uh, that boxing brings allowed for a lot more tenderness and intimacy in the relationships among the men, including uh, the men who I was training with than I've ever seen in any other context. You know, uh, I don't know whether uh, this is a spoiler. I'll try to make it not be a spoiler. So uh, (laughs) at the end of the fight, there's kind of a moment where, um, where you look over at your opponent and in boxing, you really are trying to punch each other really hard, um, you know, for a, for a sustained period of time. And you said, something softened in you, I think, towards towards him. Do you re- remember that? Could you maybe just uh, talk about that moment? We're, we're kind of running out of time here, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe what you learned about the relationship between him as one hand got lifted in the other air and the other didn't. Yeah, I think I just, in general, you know, I came into this book really, I, I'd been reporting on the masculinity crisis for a long time. I personally felt like I was experiencing my own masculinity crisis. I think we all are. I think it's a spiritual environmental and cultural crisis. I don't think it's just an economic one. And, you know, in general, I found a lot of compassion for the men I was training with um, to the point that you folks were making earlier around that lost self and that lost sense of um, empathy. And I think what, for me, that I got out of the fight was a reconnection with that part of myself. So, so for me, like the, the best thing that could have happened is what happened, which is that I saw this guy and I just felt compassion for him. Well, I think um, I think you say in the book that you saw his relief spreading across yeah. his face. And something about that, you realize maybe that you're essentially in the same trap anyway. Yeah, indeed. And I think it meant more to him than it did to me in a way that I really, I had gone through a long journey to try to understand what kind of person wants to hit another person in the face. And, and in the end, you know, I don't, I don't know if I understood him in any kind of deep way, but I felt this sense of, of deep, um, uh, just empathy, and and I think so much of being male, even when you're socialized at this at this age, is about disconnecting from that empathy. And I really, I felt like I needed to recover that. And and I think I hope the point of the book is that it's possible to recover it, no matter when you've learned to lose it. Um, we're going to have to stop there. The book is Amateur: A True Story about what it ma- what what makes a man by Thomas Page McBee. Um, this was a fun show, uh, and I just want to say once again how uh, proud. I am of Zandra Ellen, who's been just such a great uh, intern this summer. I expect her to come to my funeral and say something nice about me. Uh, Betsy Kaplan will probably come to my funeral and say that I took years off her life. Uh, But for a good cause, I think, anyway. But thanks to everybody else who helped out here and to our fabulous uh, interpreters uh, from our radio for the Duff uh, episode, uh, Mary Sue Owens and Cindy Ward. And we'll be back tomorrow with the news. About things you should know